Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, my friends are gone and my hair is grey. I ache in the places where I used to play And I'm crazy for love But I'm not coming on I'm just paying my rent every day In the Tower of Song I said to Hank Williams How lonely does it get? Hank Williams hasn't answered yet, but I hear him coughing all that long. Oh, a hundred floors above me in the Tower of Song. Microphones on. Are we on? There we are. We're on now. Here we are on Radical Australia. Look, Andy, that's totally unprofessional. You know that. The, the only reason you're here is because I can't do what you do. <laughs> so How are you? About that. I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Yeah, well, after I've admonished you publicly <laughs> for your lack of expertise. And you know, there's a, before we introduce our guests, uh, everybody's heard this one, but I don't know if you've heard this one. Did you know that in this is my 40th year here at 3CR and uh, I actually was on that side of the panel about 22 years ago? I think, yeah, I've mentioned this. Yeah, yeah I pushed a button, the whole radio station went I off there. I don't know how you managed that. But. <laughs> well, now, it was a bit simple in those days and after that I was never allowed on your side of the desk. So I'm very grateful to the fact that you and the Empress, Dale Bridge, come in and uh, help us out. Uh, it's a pleasure. Well, it's Radical Australia, so you've got to be nice to people. It's Radical Australian Community Radio, 3CR, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast on 3cr.org.au. In the studio, we have another marvellous guest. Anybody who walks into this studio to sit with me for an hour has to be a marvellous human being. We have Deborah, Debbie, Brennan. Good afternoon. Hi there, Joel. Yeah, I don't like you. You know why? Why? You're prepared. You've got a pen and you've got paper there. Well, it's a pencil, sorry. What's all this? That, that what, help- are you, you going to sue us? That helps me think. <laughs> it helps my thinking process, even if I never use it. Right, right. All right, now I understand you've actually listened to the show, which makes it difficult. Do you play a musical instrument? Uh, I I did. Right. I did. I was in the, um, the Guilford Junior High band mm. in Connecticut in the United States mm. playing the clarinet mm, and um, I took piano lessons but I can't say that those were mm. my fortes at all. Well unfortunately in this program there are no ads, there's no music, we don't ask you for your favourite records 
but I do have one exception, that if somebody can play a musical instrument or sing, they can do that during the program. As you haven't brought a piano or a clarinet, bad luck. Now, Too bad. Too bad. Just to put listeners in a little bit of a setting, what year were you born? 1946. 46. Just a youngster, a veritable youngster. Mm-hmm. 46. And you know the next question, you've been thinking about it, but we'll get deeper than that. What's your first memory? Well, um, my first memory was when I was still in the crib. The crib. With my twin brother. Mm -hmm. And I taught him how to escape the crib. Now, I can't be sure if that is something that my mother told me and she implanted that memory in my head or not. Mm. But um, I, I can actually picture the room and picture the crib. But tell us, tell, us, tell us the room and the crib. Tell us what it looks like. Well, um, my family was living on Whitfield Street in Guilford, Connecticut, and it was a uh, what they call duplex, a semi-detached place. And so um, our room was up on the second floor, and we had a, a crib against the wall, as, as you would. And um, that's pretty much what I recall of that room. You didn't try to get your brother to twin brother to escape through the window, did you? A bit of sibling rivalry? Uh, no, 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 no. We were right. we we were actually friends. But right. um, speaking of windows, really, the 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 memory where I know um, nobody told me this. I actually remember doing it. Is that, uh, and I don't know how long after that that would have been, but. Um, I decided that I wanted to get out onto the roof mm-hmm. of the house. As you do. Yeah, of course, because I just wanted a better view of the world. So I just uh, climbed up on the big big tin leading out to the the roof, and I got myself out there and enjoyed myself until I was um, snapped back inside through the window. Through the window. Somebody yep. noticed. Yep. I assume your parents aren't alive? That would be correct. And could you tell us about, what was your father's name? Uh, Richard. Richard. And what type of a parent, what type of human being was he? Uh, he, he, was, uh, he was a very kind person. Um, and he, he was very close to all four of us kids. Um, and I remember we, as a family, would just be going off on camping trips and doing this and doing that. Um, he worked for U.S. Steel in New Haven, Connecticut, and um, so I just remember that he was working a lot, but he also was spending a lot of time around us. Right, and Mum, what's her name? Her name was Barbara. Mm-hmm. She was a nurse, and um, she, uh, what can I say? Probably what I would have learned from my mother is um, uh, the strength. I mean, she was a very strong woman. I have to say that um, politically, I am completely the exact opposite of mm-hmm. what both my parents were. So, so what, were what were they? They, they. Uh, I grew up in a very right-wing family up mm-hmm. there in Connecticut, mm-hmm. in a very 
right-wing environment, so kind of right-wing working class, you could say. Right, what, guns on the wall and all that type of stuff? Uh, not quite like that. It was mm. just the nasty ideas mm. Mm. and the bigotry. Right, right. Yes. You said you had brothers and, brothers and sisters? Yeah, a brother and two sisters. sisters. Are they still alive? Yeah. And are they living in the States? Or are they... They're all in the United States, so I'm the only one out here. Still in Connecticut, are they? Uh, my two sisters would be in Atlanta, Georgia now, mm. and I'm not sure where my brother is. Right, okay. So I don't know much about schooling in the, in the uh, States, but um, do they have things like in your day, like kindergartens, all those type of things? Yeah, yeah. We, um, you start off by going to nursery school. Nursery school, Then you right. graduate right. to kindergarten. Right. So nursery school is just, what, child-minding, basically? Uh, well, uh, it, it, from what I recollect, I think it was very much like um, it is here, which is uh, early childhood development. So right. um, those who were, you know, looking after us mm -hmm. were, in fact teaching us right. in nursery school. Right. And what's the difference between nursery school and kindergarten? Well, um, kindergarten was certainly far more structured. And um, I can't tell you much about kindergarten, but mm. I do remember it was far more structured. Right. And then, of course, you move on into your first grade, what, what you call elementary school, which is primary school. Elementary school. Into first grade and beyond. Right. How many grades are there in elementary school? Uh, you will see... Up until um, but in, your in your time, yeah. yeah. Up until junior high, which so junior high starts in ninth grade, right. um, so it'd be first through the eighth grade. So right through to the eighth grade, and you've got many recollections of uh, elementary school. Yeah, I do actually. Good yeah. and bad, or uh, it was generally pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, uh, pretty non-descript mm -hmm. but um enjoyable enough enough yes <laughs> did you excel at anything well from what i remember i think i was pretty good at um writing reading and writing i enjoyed those very much so right. reading dick and jane and um writing stories mm. and so on and so forth mm. were mm. pretty easy have you maintained any friendships from elementary school? No, not at all. Not so at all. I, right. I don't really have. Um, when I when I left the United States, and that would have been um, well after I finished um, uni over there, um, that pretty much shut the door. Shut the door. Yeah. All right. all right. We'll go back to elementary school. So it sounds pretty boring to date. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then... What's the next section you said after elementary school, what do you call it? Junior high. Junior high. And what's that, 9 to 12? Or? 9 to, well, ju junior junior high, then going on to high school. Then so. to high school, right, yeah. right. And um, you, you got any recollections of any teachers during that period of junior high and high school? I, I do, but I mean, to tell you the truth, it's not the most exciting time of my life. So this is why well, I think we, do we might have, move on. We do have 56 minutes to fill, Debbie. All I right. can tell you a little you know, bit about Guilford, though. No, I'm not interested. I want, I'm interested in you. Well, however, <laughs> this is where I grew up, and I think it was part of shaping who I am now. Oh, because, tell us, what was Guilford like? What's this in the 60s, is it? Uh, yeah, 50s, 60s. 60s. And when, um, when I was growing up in that, as I said before, right-wing environment. Um, Guildford itself um, 
which is up there in what's called the New England part of the United States next to New York, um, was a very white community. And in fact, it had one African-American family and it had a couple of families from Puerto Rico who were brought in to do the super exploited mm-hmm. labor in the Pinchbeck Rose um, factory. Mm-hmm. And at the time of growing up, I mean, of course, to me, it was apparently normal. But of course, it was in reflecting back on that that I um, understood perfectly well how mm. hideous it was, and I can only imagine what it would have been like for those was, families was, to live yeah, there. But it wasn't hideous for you and 97% of the people of Guildford, was it? Uh, it, it, it wasn't. No. And, but I, I it's find, what, it's what, what would be described as an idyllic existence. Uh, I, 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 would, I wouldn't say that because mm. I think that it's something it's a memory you're stuck with mm. and it's um it's something that was part of a steep learning curve and mm. i the word i would use for all, it is all we've got is, is quite hideous all we've got is memories and if we change them as we go along well it's that's interesting so going back to uh, junior high and senior high or high school junior high and high school again did you excel anything apart from the reading and writing and novels and all that type of stuff well, um, those—I mean, those were the main things that. Mm. Oh, and uh, and history. History. You yeah. liked history. Yeah, that's what I ended up majoring in. And why did you like history? Well, once I got past the initial part of history, which was simply rote learning, doing no analysis whatsoever, and as you would imagine, knowing who was president, when, and so on and so forth. Once I got past all that stuff. At least you didn't have 46 presidents to remember, did you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Much less. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And, um, but once, we got, once I got past that and was mm. able to actually critically think about things, mm. that's when I started actually um, appreciating history. And I think the thing that... Was this in high school? No, my appreciation of history actually, um, I got it at university, right, and um, right. interestingly, it, it was when I did a bit of art history. Mm. So it was actually through that art history that I started actually um, appreciating mm. and enjoying right. history. So you finish high school, and what happens then? Well, just as I was finishing high school, um, going back to my father who worked at U.S. Steel, just before he was ready to retire, U.S. Steel sacked him mm-hmm. as they do because they don't have to pay them so much severance pay. Exactly. So therefore, my family had to move. We moved south. What Were you living in a U.S. steel home, were you? No, no. no. We were just living in a house in in Guildford. So you had to sell that. Uh, Do all that stuff. And so we had to pack up. So the end of high school, that's that's your whole life wrapped up in Guildford. So that was a, a bit of a traumatic experience, but I'm sure that it was pretty traumatic for my parents. We moved south to Jacksonville, Florida, and um, so and then from Jacksonville, Florida to Atlanta, Georgia, and so it was in from that move I went to university Where, in, in Atlanta, the south, Georgia. In Atlanta, Georgia. Yep. Um, how did you afford university if your father wasn't working? That is a very good question, actually, because um, that was uh, four years of total dread and tension. Um, I had 
um, a partial scholarship. I also had what they called a grant, which meant that I had to work Mm -hmm. um, around the cafeteria and the bookshop and all that kind of stuff. So I was able to pay for, or um, I was paid Mm -hmm. um, for part of that. Um, I worked during the summers, of course, so I did a lot of that um, uh, hospitality work. Um, But still, you know, my parents had to cough up fees and... Uh, in the United States, there's no such thing as a free education. Mm. And um, I remember several times being called into the bursar's office just before, you know, the exams at the end of a semester being told, if um, if we're not paid, you can't sit your exams. Mm. So It was that straightforward. Uh, it was that straightforward, absolutely. So, yeah, it, was, it, it wasn't easy. It was pretty hard. This is when you majored in history, is it? Yep. Mm, and this is when you started critically thinking. Yeah. All right. So what were you critically thinking about? Well, as one person, does, you start 20s. questioning things around you. Oh, you don't have to question things around you. You can just live in Guildford all your life. Yes. Well, fortunately, <laughs> I was starting to question things. Right. And, um, and of course, at that time, that was we're talking about the 1960s. And so, um, I mean, that certainly had a huge impact um, unless you deliberately find a rock to hide under, mm. you um, cannot be unaffected by the 1960s. So the uh, n- 1960s San Francisco disease went all the way down to Atlanta, Georgia, did it? Well, I mean, look when we look at the uh, when we look at the movements, the mm-hmm. feminist movement, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the um, American Indian movement. Eventually, Stonewall erupting in 1969, um, bringing on the gay liberation movement. Um, it was it was a tumultuous decade, and um, while I was not quite swept up in it, what was happening though was it was seeping in. Mm-hmm. And um, so... Were there things happening on campus, or you'd left campus by then? uh, No, I I was on campus during all that time. Mm. In fact, fact, going back to my latter part of high school, like um, that's when JFK, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. um, So that was a bit of a jolt. And then when I go to university, those were the times of... um, you know, Martin Luther King and Al, um, Malcolm X and so on. Martin Luther King was assassinated when I was in university. And, of course, Atlanta, Georgia, it, which is where uh, Martin Luther King uh, was from. Um, so basically of all the movements, probably the anti-war and the uh, civil rights movement would have been the strongest in where where I was. Right, yeah. right. So it was uh, Atlanta, Georgia isn't a backwater. Uh, it was kind of a contradictory place. Um, it was, sure, it was a backwater. I, I actually, my first job when I graduated, here I get this history degree, and the job I get is making reservations for, for Delta Airlines. Um, well, so, at, least, at least they so, know where they're going. So much. <laughs> I mean, you did that here four years. Uh, yeah, well, I worked, I worked for Delta Airlines for um, after four years at uni, four and a half years at Delta. Mm. And the reason I'm mentioning Delta right now um, in, in reference to the movements there and whether Atlanta's a backwater or not is that um, I, uh, most of my 
coworkers and I were mm. overwhelmingly women and African Americans. Why was that? Because it was cheap labor. Cheap labor. Yeah. Cheap labor. And um, Delta, of course, was non-union. And by non-union over there, I mean that there are employers over there that can absolutely forbid any union getting into that company. Delta Airlines was one of those. So you can imagine what our pay was like. Our conditions were just um, were, were just yeah, absolutely you, you wrong. I'm devastated. Are you t- I'm gutted. Are you telling me that in the land of the brave and the free... That you're not allowed to unionize if the boss says no union is no union. Um, yes, Joe, that is the truth. <laughs> and in fact, in fact, um, the South is where a lot of companies in other parts of the country um, did and still, when they they want to um, relocate to the cheap labor, the South has been where they would relocate. Also, of course, to other parts of the world, as we know. Mm. And, of course, there would be a reason for that, because, I mean, this is like the legacy of the Civil War and the slavery and so on. So, really, in a way, I was um, working in that legacy. Mm. And uh, Mm. so, in terms of backwater, um, it was very... It was very redneck in, in, in many respects, but at the same time, um, it was, there were fantastic people there. And the people I was working with, my, my women and African-American workmates, were um, just really fantastic people. In terms of backwater, probably one indelible memory that I've got from working at Delta Airlines was um, walking into work one day and finding out that one of my workmates, Dot, an African-American workmate, that her husband had just been found dead that morning having been lynched. Right. What year is this? This would have been in, um, I think it would have been about 1970. And he would have been lynched because he was People thought of him as an uppity nigger, I yep, assume. That's the, the word that would have been used. Absolutely. And, of course, whenever I went out for lunches or dinners, we did shift work, so we went out to dinner, went out to lunch, went out to breakfast together. I would be going out with my workmates, and um, the, the, the absolute look of hatred that people in the um, mm. cafeterias would be giving me well, that's right, because you're mixing with these people. Exactly. I mean, you're letting the race down. Exactly. You're I was, letting the race I was down. a traitor. You're a race traitor. Yep. I'm interviewing a race traitor. Yep. I can't yep. believe it. Proudly well, so, too. I'm shocked. Andy, could we stop this interview, please? We've got a race traitor here on. <laughs> <laughs> so what made you leave what made Delta you? Airlines? Well, I think you probably might have an idea why. Yeah. Um, I hate, well, of course, I hated that job because it was not, not only were the conditions horrible Mm -hmm. but of course you could imagine being a young woman there the sexual harassment the everything i mean you name it we had it and um it it, the only thing that was a pleasure to go into work for for was you know working with my my workmates because i had very great friendships but Mm -hmm. um yeah so i i left because i i didn't like the work there. <laughs> well, were you still living at home or you'd moved out by then? I had moved out, yes. Right. And what were you living in? 
What was I living in? Mm. I was living in um, a flat mm. with um, a couple of other women who were working for Delta, Delta Airlines. Right. And what did your parents think of all this? Well, uh, my mother thought it was just absolutely wonderful working for Delta Airlines. She would have thought that they were a great employer. Mm -hmm. um, she would have thought they were great because, well, employers are great. Bosses are great. And, um, and they paid me, so I should be grateful, that kind of thinking. Mm. Um, so um, the one thing that she didn't quite like about me working at Delta was my friendships. Oh, I can understand. I can so, understand. Um, I wouldn't like that either. Yeah, so that, that's, that's pretty much what my um, parents thought of it. Mm. So what happens after you leave Delta Airlines? Was it a kind of a spur-of-the-moment decision? You said, I've had enough and said, Piss, I'm pissing off? Well, um, it, no, it wasn't a spur-of-the-moment um, because when you leave, it's when I came here. So when you do so that... I, 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 let's go back one step. You leave Delta Airlines. Yes, and, and I came what, to Australia. You're about 28. Uh, no, I was 25. 25. What in God's mind possessed you to come here? What year was this? 72. 72. How did you find out about us? Yeah. Um, we didn't have the World Wide Web then in YouTube. That, that's <laughs> often asked of me. And actually, I... I often have to think back, why did I do this? Um, one thing I got out of Delta Airlines was I got to travel. Mm -hmm. And so naturally I took advantage of the free passes that I could get, and I went to all, all sorts of places. Um, one of the trips that um, – oh, and I was able to come to Australia. I came to Australia a few times that way. Um, so my reason for – leaving Delta Airlines and coming to Australia was the technical reason that actually got me here was that I had met a person from Sydney. I got married and mm -hmm. came and lived in Sydney. The technical reason. I yeah. like the, the technical phrase. <laughs> you didn't pay them, did you? No way. Were they, were they Australian? Yeah, yeah. All right. And, uh, um, hopefully this was, you know... You uh, both no, agreed. Uh, oh, it, it was well, all above board. It was, was it? It was love, was it? I, I yeah. I have to say, I was ambivalent about the idea of marriage, but that that's what well, you kind of well, had to, to do. Escape to, from Atlanta, Georgia. Exactly. Well, why wouldn't so, you get married? <laughs> so therefore, I did. And um, but you know that probably the compelling reason was that I just I wanted something different. I yeah, wanted something yeah. entirely different. And the visits that I had to Sydney, I loved Sydney. I thought it was a great place. Mm, obviously things have changed because you live in Melbourne, but we'll go into that. <laughs> so what was life like when you landed in Sydney? Did you have a job or you, did you play no, housewife? No, I had to find – no <laughs> way, no way. I, no, I had to find a job. So oh. um, I actually got into teacher training. Mm -hmm. I was yes, able to there get was a shortage. And I was thinking training. maybe one of these Americans who came in 72 to I, teach. I copped that quite a lot, actually, mm -hmm. understandably, mm -hmm. that uh, when I got my first teaching job um, – uh, there was that kind of skull on the face and no. you're one of those. And I, of course, had to continually explain myself and say, no, no, I actually did my teacher training over here and um, and had to get all the credentials and stuff over here. Um, so I got my teacher training I, and so I got my first I started teaching. So in I started what, teaching primary, in high secondary? school. Secondary, high school. secondary right. school. And, History? Um, in history, yes, mm. and I, um, my first teaching job was at Blacktown Girls High. Right. 
And um, I think the surprise to me was that they had separate girls' schools and and boys' schools. Mm. And um, Blacktown Girls was next door to Blacktown Boys. And um, so that was kind of a a strange dynamic, I thought. But... um, uh, nevertheless, it, it was it was okay. Um, I th- the sort of thing that I had to contend with, and it was not just the, just the students, but um, people generally, was being American. There was a strong anti-Americanism. There was, especially in the yeah, I agree. Look, e- exactly, I was part of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's your stigmata. Is your accent? Is v- your stigmata? Very, very, very much. You know, and labelled on your it forehead. It was. Yeah. It was bloody American. What are you doing here? The thing is, I mean, I understood it mm. because, after all, I mean, it all came from American American imperialism, mm-hmm. and so I needed to continually explain. Look. I'm a working class America. I am not the White House. Yeah, in fact, that's right. Well, I'm that's how people forget, isn't it? It's the same. I'm, yeah, you exactly. judge people. You judge people by the way they look, how they talk, their religion, the, the usual garbage, you know. And you don't judge them by what they believe in, how they act, who they are. So, well, and, and we, we're all guilty. It's a terrible thing to do to a person. Well, I mean, the thing is, it, it was, it was important for me because it actually. Um, it made me understand. I mean, I, under, I, I got to understand where it was coming from, completely agreeing with mm. where it came mm. from. Mm. But the thing is that I did have to explain, and I had to give sort of a, a class-conscious explanation and say that really if you look at what's been happening in the last decade, in the 1960s, Americans were actually in the streets That's right. protesting the and That's the right. forefront of those grassroots movements. Mm. So, I don't know if I should ask you this. How long did the marriage last? Uh, I finally um, uh, went my, we went our own way uh, uh, in 1988. Well, that's, that's a long yeah, time. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's good. yeah. We'll go back a step. So, so how long did you teach for? I, um, I taught until, well, I taught until I left Sydney to come to Melbourne, I moved fairly quickly from high school into TAFE. Right. So most of my teaching was actually in TAFE. Mm-hmm. And I taught in the School of General Studies in East Sydney Tech, and I absolutely loved it there. And um, part of what I really enjoyed living in Sydney was... I was very um, active in the teachers' union. Right. I was a union delegate. Mm-hmm. There was lots of stuff going down up there um, when I was teaching. The privatizing was starting and so on. So there were massive, massive battles. Um, but I was also getting involved in the Aboriginal movement, the early land rights movement, Black Deaths in Custody movement, and also... How, um, how did you veer in that direction? Well, I think it had a lot to do with um, teaching at East Sydney Tech, actually, because right. um, there I was, plonked in the center of of Sydney at Taylor Square, which was where a lot of stuff was happening in Sydney. It was like a, a political, that part mm. was a whole political hub. Yep. And I think, um, again, you'd have to try hard mm. to avoid it, and not that I was avoiding mm. it, but I think mm. it was the combination mm of teaching history 
And one you teach, you probably appreciate this, and maybe a lot of listeners would appreciate, is that when you're teaching, you have to learn a lot. And I had to learn a lot about um, uh, the revolution syllabus that I was teaching, the Russian Revolution. I was teaching the Cuban Revolution, the American Revolution. I was actually educating myself about American history. Mm -hmm. Um, Ancient history, I, I had to teach myself. This is when I became... Basically, I became um, introduced to Marxist analysis about where women's oppression came from, which was through private property relations and the evolution of a class system. So I was becoming politicized through my teaching, through my union work, and there it's just natural Mm -hmm. that you go into, um, you, you connect with, in my case, the Aboriginal movement, the uh, there was also a, a movement um, against American intervention in Central America, which I was active in as well. Mm. And um, it was in... So in, we're, act, we're active in these um, campaigns as an individual part of a group. Sorry, sir? So, did you act in these campaigns oh, as an individual or were you part of a political group? I, I, I was an individual. I was an individual at that time. Mm. What happened in this period, um, and this we're talking about the mid-80s by now, um, I went on a work brigade to Cuba. Right. What, well, what, what made you go on a work brigade to Cuba? Well, because I wanted to see Cuba. I was very interested in seeing Cuba. Was was this for the Cuba Friendship? uh, 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 Yeah. So it was the second work brigade Mm -hmm. to Cuba, Mm -hmm. Australia and New Zealand. Did did you have have an Australian passport by then? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. So by that time I was an American, uh, sorry, uh, an Australian citizen. citizen, Which would make it a lot easier. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And... uh, and by the way, to get an Australian citizenship, when I did, I had to give up my American citizenship. Dual citizenship was mm, not allowed. That's right. So um, I I wanted to actually see what a, an, an aspiring mm. socialist society looked like. And that was... How long was it, the, the trip? It was a month. And, and what did you do? Well, besides picking oranges, um, we we actually... We got around to um, a lot of workplaces, seeing various fact- seeing various factories, going to schools, um, visiting um, a number of uh, community organizations. We went up into the mountains where um, Fidel and and Che were were fighting, and um, so we actually went through. Um, various parts of Cuba, and it was really quite an eye-opener, but it was there. Going back to your question of was I doing all this as an individual, it was there that I met Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party, mm-hmm. both Trotskyist feminist organizations. I was actually looking for... I, I, I knew I had... I couldn't go on mm-hmm. as an independent activist being by that time a full-blown socialist feminist and so I had been looking for where do I belong when I met radical women and the Freedom Socialist Party in Cuba I thought okay I I, I think I've I've met um, two organizations so I it was not it was I worked with them I worked them for quite a while 
um, on various things, and then ultimately I joined both organizations. When you came back to Australia? When I came back to Australia, right. yes. So you said you married, you kind of went your separate ways in 88. Yeah. So this is about that period. Any any children from the relationship? No. No children, which makes it a lot easier. Much it? easier, yes. Much easier. Much. much easier. So what did you do when you, get, when you, when you joined Radical um, Women and... Uh, are you asking in terms of what? A type of activities were you involved in? Oh, right. Um, well, first of all, Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party were based in Melbourne. I was mm. up there in Sydney. Mm. So I was um, working a lot with RW and the FSP in, in my union work up there. And I was also um, working with them in, there were some pretty important LGBTI campaigns that were going on up there as well. Um, so I was pretty much involved in those movements as well as the Aboriginal movement huh. while I was up there in Sydney. Mm -hmm. So why'd you come to Melbourne? Well, um, the the reason I came to Melbourne was actually because Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party were in Melbourne. Well, so you I really, could have set up a branch in Sydney. I, I could have, but I came to Melbourne. You came to Melbourne. Yeah. What, what year was that? That was 1990. 1990. And um, what did you think of Melbourne when you got here in 1990? I liked Melbourne. I like both places. They're both entirely different places. Um, but I, I just slipped right into into Melbourne very very easily and of mm. course it was easy to um to you know move into Melbourne because loads was happening and loads in 1990 loads and loads was happening so um like, the, like what like what well i'm i'm just 1990 this is when um this was the lead up to the Iraq war um Again, there were, I particularly remember, though, um, before that time, the union work, because mm. I was teaching in TAFE down here. Right. Um, so you're still still a delegate in the union when you came uh, down here? I became um, a delegate, yes, in mm. the union down here, right. which was a, a different teacher's union mm. at the time. Mm -hmm. I was working as a sessional teacher uh, down here, which was, of course, um, a very insecure form of work. Um, and there was a lot happening on the union front. I remember, uh, I think I was still, yeah, it was my first year of teaching where, um, uh, where there was this thing going down at the, the, the TAFE where, where I was teaching. And um, the s student union was actually being victimized. Um, also, certain teachers were being victimized. And so what was happening was that um, those of us in the teachers' union and also the union covering the admin staff and also what was then the miscellaneous workers' union, the, mm -hmm. we were banding together to actually um, do strike action at this particular um, TAFE. Uh, we had a picket. We worked with the student union as right. well. In fact, the students that I was teaching, mm. um, I was very proud of them. They occupied the director's office. And um, so it was really a hot year. And so that Sounds kept me like busy yeah. uh, down you, here. Did you eventually get tenure? 
Well, yes, that's an interesting question. I uh, found out that um, the following year, um, I was twiddling my thumbs wondering why I wasn't getting offered a job. Um, I found out later that the um, head teachers who wanted to give me a job were told they I was black banned. That's right. People don't understand that, do they? No. There's a price. That's right. There is a price. Even in a so-called sophisticated <laughs> society like Melbourne and Victoria, there is a price the activist pays for Absolutely. bucking the system. So did you stay in teaching? Yes, I did. I um, Well, we had a bit of a fight um, through fight. the union. What are the bruises? Go on. <laughs> Uh, we we did put up a fight, but um, I did get teaching, but um, uh, in different departments, right. and but it was like terribly insecure teaching. So my first year down here, I had a year's contract. Mm-hmm. Um, my teaching from then on was nothing like a year's contract. It was a bit here, yeah, a bit, bit there, there. Yeah. and I ended up teaching it at other, you know. TAFE locations, and there was a time when I was half living on whatever I got as a sessional teacher, teacher and Centrelink. Yes, yes. So has your relationship with the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women continued since the 1990s? Oh, very much. I'm very much... Well, I'm the Melbourne organiser for Radical Women. Right. And, of course, I'm very much um, very involved in the Freedom Socialist Party, mm. yeah. Tell us, tell us about both organisations. Well... Um, they're, they're both the thing, what, what is common to both is socialist feminism. Um, hang on, hang on, let's go back one step. Because yep. I just like to dissect things in the program. Because for our listeners' sake, um, I mean, they're, they're two words, socialist feminism. Yes. What's a socialist feminist? A socialist feminist is um, one who sees that socialism and feminism, feminism being the struggle for women's equality, liberation, are inseparable. So, in other words, we see uh, the women's struggle as right there, front and center of the class struggle. It is not a separate struggle. So we would differ from parts of the left who would be actually quite anti-feminist to say, um, you know, women, you just put your struggle over there. Let's get the class struggle going first and finished. Wow, that's a very old-fashioned view, isn't it's it, a these very days? But I assume in the 90s Stalinist it wasn't. View. Yeah, it wasn't in the 1990s. It was a very uh, common Well, view. it was alive and well. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah. so socialist feminism yeah. is, is very much um, mm. programmatically, that is the whole center of the mm. of the of the of the belief system, what we stand for is that um, women's struggle is very much at the center. So women are leaders in that class revolution. Mm-hmm. And um, the most oppressed as well are the, the leadership for that that mm. class revolution actually comes from those who are kept down rock bottom. So... So that's what socialist feminism is multi-issue because of that. So that when we talk about feminism, we are linking the struggle of women to the struggle of men and women of color, LGBTIQ, um, mm-hmm. 
with disability and mm-hmm. so on. So it's not a women-only thing. But women's struggle has a central point because, after all, um, our central position, simply because half the population... You're kidding. Yes. You're not going to tell me half the population the are women. the entire world... Are women. Are women and are... I'm shocked. I thought you are only about 10%. Are... <laughs> are oppressed as women, and that's where capitalism wouldn't last a day without sexism. So did did you kind of drift into an organiser's role as your education work decreased, or did you make a conscious decision to become more in, involved in the party and the group you're in? I would say it was very much a conscious decision because... Um, why did you make that decision? Because I, be- I, I, I agreed entirely with what radical women and what the Freedom Socialist Party stand for because by the time I had met both, I had already believed that. Mm -hmm. I had already come to those conclusions. And so, um, in fact, for me, it was quite a find to come across both those organizations. So it was a very conscious and a seriously conscious decision mm. to join and once you you do make that serious conscious decision to join then you are in it boots and all right and what year do you think you made that conscious decision oh i would say that i was totally conscious of it um by the early 80s. By the early 80s. Yeah. And, was that, and you only formalised the relationship yeah. in the 90s when you found groups that a- absolutely. coincided with your ideas. Absolutely, because mm. I had those ideas very firmly in my mind mm. as I was um, a union activist up there right. in the New South Wales Teachers Federation, for mm. example. Mm. So when did the teaching work kind of exit fizzle? your life? Yeah, fizzle, get, exit your life. Yeah, well... Um, the kind of subjects that I um, was teaching, like in the humanities and so on, the funding fizzled, so I wasn't getting any more of that teaching. And, and also I had to move into other parts of teaching, such as communication studies, mm-hmm. but the funding for those were fizzling. So when it was when I got to a point where, look, I'm relying more on Centrelink that I am, than I am on a on a wage in the TAFE system, I had to go looking for something else. And so I ended up in the community sector for for um, a long while. So What's a long while? 10 years, 15 years? Uh, I would have, that would have been, that would have been maybe for three or four years. And what were you doing? I, uh, my job, my initial job in the community sector, I don't know if anybody remembers the collective of self-help groups. Um, so I uh, worked with them. I then became a union delegate there. Again, oh, it's a disease. In the, um, I think it was called the Australian um, uh, Social Welfare Union, which mm. became the ASU, the Australian Services Union. So um, I was active in that. And then, of course, as soon as uh, Jeff Kennett was elected, um, that got defunded. It was one of the first to be defunded, so I was out of a job and um, unemployed for a while, and I became a bank teller. Good. You're touching money. Touching money. I, you know, I, I have to say, to be a bank teller, I lasted 10 months. Mm-hmm. 
congratulations. Yes, thank you. Commiserations. I, I, I thought, yeah, I thought that was quite an achievement. It brought me, it took me back to working for Delta Airlines. Uh, it was that same, you yeah. know, push, 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 bring in the business, bring in the business, yeah. and uh, would you like bring in the, the loan, profit. Sir, would you like us to increase your credit card? Yeah, limits? exactly. Did, exa- you, did, you, did exa- you used to get a percentage for that, or no? Uh, no, nothing. No, no, you just no, kept no, your job. No, <laughs> I remember what I was paid. I was paid twelve dollars fifty-two cents or something an hour, yeah. um, and it was like. Pushing these products, as they called it, pushing mm. these products that I couldn't even afford. No. But what, what's it like getting $12.52 an hour and you're handling thousands of dollars? Do you ever get the urge to pocket it? Well, you know, the interesting thing about working as a bank teller was um, the, the, the whole environment was um, suspicion, Everybody was a potential criminal. Mm-hmm. The staff were potential criminals. Anybody coming in was going to... Rob the staff. Yeah. Yeah. The cleaners were potential criminals. Everybody was... Security was potential security, criminals. Security, absolutely everybody. So the thing is, at the end of each day, if your till didn't balance, Whoa. you had things to answer. And so um, it, was, it was stressful. It was extremely stressful, and um, and I have to say that I went into that job. They didn't train us for this. Um, they, well, they trained us like in the most superficial way, but you're not trained the way you should be trained in yes, a very complex yes. thing. And so, um, yeah, I, I have to feel I left work where every day thinking, when I walk in tomorrow, they're going to tell me it's the last day. Okay. I just know they are. So mm-hmm. I, I uh, when... There was a second um, opportunity to go to Cuba after 10 months um, working at this bank, and I grabbed it and I quit the bank. And this is when Radical Women was working with the Federation of Cuban Women on an international feminist brigade to Cuba, and I was off. Off. And had there been any, what was that, 15 years apart, the two trips? Uh, 1997, yeah, yeah, 12, 12. whatever years. Uh, Did you notice any differences when you're back? Huge. Huge. So it was, uh, you could really see by 1997 the, um, the, the, the terrible impact of the, of the blockade. And it was affecting as, uh, particularly women and children. And so the fact that, you know, um, oil for cooking, for example, um, was scarce the scarcities of everything you could look around i we, we would see the same parts of havana that i saw 12 or 13 years before buildings were crumbling infrastructures were toppling there were brownouts that were mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. um on a regular basis and also what we were finding what cubans were telling us was um sexism was coming back in to into play racism was coming back into play simply because of the scarcity the 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 pressures on on housing um the pressures that tourism um placed upon hotels where the racist tourists wanted only white cubans to work sex work was coming back in so socially in every way um you could really see the impact It mm. had an enormous effect. Mm. But we were there to not only 
see this and work with Cubans on the ground. Mm. But we were there. Um, there was actually a, a conference that we were part of, and we we um, had a conference where we there were five, four or five countries represented, and um, we came. We left with a strategy: what are we going to do when we go back to our respective countries? Mm. Um, which is what we we played out. The um, I remember returning mm. to the United States because we went mm. via the United States both ways and coming back through Houston. Um, we all were being vetted and everything. Once we got through the vetting, we were there in the terminal and we unfurled this huge banner saying Cuba, Cuba is yeah. not our enemy. Yeah. And... Um, it was that, that was like our first Catholic, yeah, our first thing yeah. now i've only got a few minutes left now yeah. what are you doing this year what have you got organized this year as an organizer for the uh, socialist there, freedom party there there are three things coming up that um listeners would want to hear about i'm sure both radical women and the freedom socialist party are involved in a anti-fascist united front called the campaign against racism and fascism and um and for the last two years, basically, we've been keeping the fascists at bay. Um, on the 10th of February, there is going to be an action. We don't know where yet it's going to be, but um, against the Q Society. The Q Society is holding a fundraiser That's dinner. That's Friday. And mm. they're... they're um, Key so guests, it's next Friday. A week from that's right. Next Friday, yeah. and their key uh, speakers are Corey Bernardi and George Christensen. Oh, lovely people to speak to. And what are the other two things that you've got? Okay. Here? So if people want to follow that up, do they go to a website? Uh, what I'm going to do, yeah. I'll give just one contact for all three. All right. So good. I'll give that at the yeah. end. Um, a second is International Women's Day, the day after on the 9th of March. Both Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party are having a co-IWD uh, forum uh, called What's Let's... International Women's Day Forum. International Women's Day right. Forum. Let's talk about intersection, intersectionality, class, and women's liberation. Whoa. That will be held at Solidarity Salon, our organizing center in yeah. Brunswick. Right. The third is in February, February 25th on Saturday. This is a Freedom Socialist Party uh, film night, which is a fundraiser for our two newspapers. And it's... Um, what are the newspapers? The Freedom Socialist International newspaper and the Freedom Socialist Organizer, which is what we produce here. Mm -hmm. And it's a fundraiser for those newspapers, but it's going to be a film night, which is a film um, looking back on 50 years of the Freedom Socialist Party with footage going back to the party founders and so on. So that is um, Saturday the 25th, 7 p.m. at Solidarity Salon. Now I'll just give one contact and I can direct people as they need to be directed. I'll give... Um, a email for Radical Women, which is radicalwomen, one word, at optusnet.com.au. So it's Radical Women, women. at optusnet.com.au or phone number 9388-0062. Now that phone number again? 9388 Double zero six two, and I hope you got an answering machine. 
Yes. Because a lot of organisations don't anymore, I've noticed. Yes, we do. Yeah, well, that's excellent. And yes. uh, everybody's welcome? Absolutely everybody is welcome. Is there any fee for any of these events? The uh, only fee for the IWD would be dinner, mm -hmm. which is um, a beautiful dinner for $10. Uh, for the fundraiser event at the Freedom Socialist Party, it is $15 unwaged, 25 waged, 40 solidarity price. That includes dinner and movie. Excellent. Well, Debbie, Brennan, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You haven't used your pencil and notebook once, which means you're engaged in the conversation. Very engaged. Thank so, you very no, much, no, Joe. No, it's a pleasure to talk to you. It's a pleasure to see where you've come from, what you've done, and more importantly, what you are doing and what you are going to do. So thank you, Andy, for doing all the technical bits thank and pieces. Thank you, Andy. That was really interesting. Yeah, thank you. He can't help it. He's got to sit there. <laughs> he's got to say it's interesting or he break his fingers. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure talking to you. and I wish you all the best for the future. And I wish that your life um, continues to be as exciting as it is. Well, we'll just see each other in the streets. So we have quite a year coming up. Excellent. All the best. Thank you. Everybody knows that the day is so loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor, the rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the Leaking. Everybody knows the captain lied. Everybody got this broken feeling, like their father or their dog just died. Everybody talking to their pockets. Everybody wants a box of chocolates and the long stem rose. Everybody.